Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this week, I'm traveling. And instead of doing the thing, I'm doing a different thing, where I play a rerun. And in this case, I'm playing a rerun that I thought would tie in really well with last week's episode. Last week, we talked about the first paramedics. So this week, we're going to revisit the Young Lords. We're going to talk about the group of radicals who completely changed the way that healthcare works in this country by taking direct action and doing all kinds of cool stuff. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to Inside Podcasting, the podcast where we give you all the tips and tricks you need to run a successful podcast. Our first tip, I'm going to give it to you for free, is don't try and come up with a clever podcast introduction for every single episode, because it gets old and boring, and then you find yourself doing introductions like this instead of saying... This is Cool People Did Cool Stuff. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, which is much nicer and easier to say. You see? That's that's the first tip on this. Okay, so with me today is Alinda Sagata. Uh, Alinda, Hello. how are you doing? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Yay. Usually I'm like, on this day, that's totally a different day than last time, but this time it is a different day than last time. It is. We're yeah. older, wiser yeah. than last week. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm on more antibiotics than I was last week, but I have less tooth pain. So that is an advantage. Oh. Yeah. I think I, I did the, I... the last recording with like wisdom tooth infection. Oh, wow. Psychedelic. Yeah. <laughs> Our producer is back. We're no longer running rudderless. We have Sophie Lichterman with us. Sophie, how are you doing? Is that, is that what happens when I'm not here? <laughs> we were lost. Mm-hmm. It was my first time, but I was lost. Without you. Oh, thank you, Alinda. Magpie, that was Mm -hmm. not your first rodeo. (laughs) What happened? (laughs) 
Oh, I'm glad to be back and excited, excited to hear parts three and four. Yeah. Okay. Also, our audio engineer is Ian. Thanks, Ian, for doing the thankless work. Our theme music was written for us by Unwoman. And this week, we are picking up where we left off last week for our second ever four-parter. Um, go back and listen to parts one and two. What's wrong with you? Why do you start on episode three of a four-parter? Um, <laughs> you're probably the kind of person who can read comic books. I can't read comic books because I don't know where to start. Wow, really? You start wherever. I know that's, that doesn't in. work for me. <laughs> to be fair, Magpie, we just made a we just made an off mic argument for why you would start at the end of something instead of at the beginning because you might find out somebody that you think is a hero is actually a really really bad person in their personal life. Oh, that's true. I actually, for research purposes, should probably start all biographies about three quarters of the way through the book yeah. and read through the yeah, end of their yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, that's not what's happening in this particular episode. They, you know, no one's perfect. No group is perfect. Um, but we're focusing on the stuff that the young lords did. And there was way too much good shit to just do in two episodes. So here we are. We are talking about the young lords, a Puerto Rican street gang turned activist organization, who where we left off is just rocking shit in New York City. They're setting trash on fire, but in a good way. Um, I feel like there's like good and bad ways to set trash on fire. And they're all set to come into their own. So let's watch them do it. So they've just burned a whole bunch of garbage and gotten the city to be like, maybe we need to do something about this garbage because these radicals keep setting it all on fire and blocking the roads. So they open up a storefront because now they're way more popular than they were. And um, they turn their organization... They started operating more like having autonomous working groups that work on different issues. Okay, and one cool. of the autonomous working groups they set up is really interesting to me. They set up police watch organizations to go watch the police, right? Uh-huh. And these were community-led rather than just led by the young lords, which oh, rules. Wow. Yeah, like, I haven't, because I haven't done a Panthers episode yet, I'm not trying to contrast to the Panthers ideas of yeah. police watch and stuff. But if you're going to have a membership organization with a hierarchy, please do shit like this. It was an autonomous affiliate network of neighbor, neighbor circles. And most of the volunteers were men and women in their 40s, um, not directly affiliated with the lords. I think this was to basically have like cooler heads, like, uh-huh. like people who are a bit calmer and more trustworthy in this way or whatever, you know. And they focused on conflict de-escalation. They also helped resist unlawful arrests. Wow. And their goal was to eventually make the police obsolete. I really like this. Yeah. I also really (laughs) like this. (laughs) I know. I'm like, why doesn't this just happen? Why don't people just make the police obsolete? I mean, probably a lot of people who try Mm -hmm. to make the police obsolete by (laughs) either going to jail or becoming worse than the cops. But like the Punisher tried to make cops obsolete, but he sucks. Um, Anyway, uh, they were unarmed. Or at least they were not armed with firearms, which wasn't a moral decision, but instead a strategic one within the context they were in. Actually, most of what the Young Lords are doing is unarmed compared to a lot of other organizations. We're going to talk oh, about what weapons they did use. Have you have you heard what weapon their like signature weapon was? No. I'm not going to tell you yet. It's going to come up later in the script. Okay. It's so good. I want well. you to think about what would be the coolest... <laughs> like non-gun weapon that they could have i know right now i'm picturing like chain with the ball with the spikes on it 
Ooh, that's pretty good. <laughs> is, it a, you know? is it a battle axe? Nope. Oh, nope. Is that it's not called? a flail. It's not a battle axe. Okay. <laughs> when I do my spinoff episode, Great Medieval Weapons of History, <laughs> yeah, totally. explain the difference between morning stars and flails. Um, and the like argument about whether or not the flail was actually historically used medieval. Okay, anyway. So <laughs> they waited until they had buy-in from the community before they even started this organization. They didn't just be like, oh, we're the new cops in town. We're going to start okay. roaming the streets. They ended up with 200 volunteers that patrolled a five-block area around their storefront. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. 200 people is a lot of people. I know. And, like, I want to know more about its organizational models. I mean, that's, like, my nerd shit is I want to figure out where they were hierarchical, where they weren't hierarchical, where they, like, moved into different realms. But, you know. They also launched a children's breakfast program working together with the Black Panthers. I think that, and this is an inference from several sources, but I think that this is because the Panthers, they're on the downswing because of the Panther 21 trial, right? So the young lords oh, okay. are stepping up and the Panthers are helping them do it. And the cops work really hard to discourage parents from letting their kids participate, saying basically like, oh, they're a gang. Don't let your kids fall into that gang. Keep your kids away from, you know, the evil young lords or whatever. Yeah. It didn't work. Lots of people went. Working out of the storefront, the community just pours in support from all corners. There's local thieves who are like, hey, do you want some chairs? We stole out of this VW. And that's wow. where all the chairs in the office came from. <laughs> cool. Healthcare professionals donated medicine and volunteered, and there was an informal clinic run out of there. Wow. On probably hanging out on the VW chairs that were stolen out of. I mean, whoever's VW was was maybe mad, but you know, maybe they wanted a richer neighborhood to do it. Who knows? Crowdsourcing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From each according to ability to steal to each according to need of stolen goods. That's, yeah. Um, they kept the whole block clean because that was like kind of their initial thing anyway, right? That they like physically clean the streets, not metaphorically clean the streets. Although we'll talk about some of their how they handled drug dealers in a little bit later. Because people loved them, um, yeah, they set them out in the trash on fire. Everyone liked them. Fire makes friends, apparently. I know. I would I would think there'd be more of a backlash. I'm pretty excited that people are like, way to go, guys. Someone had to do it. Yeah. Like, I, I struggle to imagine that right now in most places you could go burn a bunch of trash in the street and make, do more than polarize people. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, the need was so great that they, you know, that the community was just like, something had to happen. We needed our trash to get picked up. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I bet you it's like, I bet you the first half was like, half the people were like, fuck yeah, burning trash, this rules, fuck the man. And the other half was like, I don't know about that. But then when it like worked and people started picking up the trash regularly, they were like, oh, all right. And so... They're this much larger organization now. Some of them are still in high school. Uh, so the young lords managed to continue their name. But a lot of them dropped out of college and high school to work on this. There's a lot of ex-college kids. This is a pattern we see across the late 60s, early 70s movements, is that people go full-time to work on this stuff. And the people who can go full-time wow. are people who are like, well, why would I want a degree when instead I can change the world? Yeah. As someone who made that decision myself, I have a particular affinity for this. <laughs> yeah. No, no 
everyone who finished their degrees, that's great. Fuck yeah. Um, anyway, they start working alongside the welfare rights movement. They're just involved in everything. Because a 14-year-old young lord got arrested at a welfare rights demonstration. Um, as far as I... I didn't put this in the script, but basically I think he was like walking home from somewhere and he saw a bunch of uh, women like doing a sit-in and were like, he was like, oh, I'm with them and then sat down and got arrested or something like that. And okay. he ends up in Friend of the Pod, The Tombs, which has been, which has locked up basically everyone in this show who's lived in New York over the course of 150 years. Like we do episodes about the 19th century and all of the anarchists are getting sent to the tombs. Oh, wow. And here we are in the 1960s. People are getting sent to the tombs. You ever been to the tombs? I, I have no idea if you got arrested I, in New York. I have not, actually. Okay. I never got arrested in New York. I have not been York. sent, but the name sends chill, a chill down my spine. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I feel like most guests, I'd be very nervous to be like, hey, you ever got arrested? <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> so the welfare movement of the late of the 1960s deserves, deserves its own episode at some point. They shut down New York City a bunch of times. They were fierce as fuck. They were women of color led. And the New York young lords weren't exclusively men, and some of the founders were women, but this alliance still helps bring gender equity, equality into the movement. Like more and more women are joining because they're focusing yeah. also on this, this particular thing. Um, and this is something that they keep doing over and over again is that they keep moving and working on issues that bring more and more women into the movement. And I think that's really cool. By October 1969, they put together a 13-point program modeled on the Black Panthers, um, but growing from it as well. Uh, they use the word Latino in this, which is one of the first public uses of the word in this context. And as far as I can tell, yeah, as, as a white person who just read this stuff, Basically, later in, in the 1970s, Hispanic was added to the census. And so Latino uh -huh. became more of a word to be like, fuck Spain. Like, what the fuck? We're not from Spain. We're from yeah, Latin yeah, America. yeah. But this is before that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think that they're still already on the like, fuck Spain. We're not from Spain. Totally. Um, <laughs> yes, they're very yeah. much on that too. Yeah. And it also, it talks about this 13-point this program. It talks about cross-racial solidarity between all oppressed people. It talks about internationalism. It talks about women's liberation. Uh, it doesn't always succeed at doing more than talking about these things, but we'll get to that. Yeah. And I believe mm -hmm. that at first it was like a 10-point demand, right? And then I think I, from what I remember reading, like the parts about ma battling machismo and women's liberation were added because of pressure from women within the Young Lords. I believe you're right. I wrote a bunch of the script a little bit ago. Yeah. It, it got, at the very least, it got rewritten to uh -huh. further emphasize these things. Yeah. I think the women's liberation thing was, I, I could be wrong. I think it was in there in the beginning, but it uh -huh. wasn't as strongly worded and it was like near the end. It was like the last point or the second to last totally. point. Totally. And so it got like bumped up to number three or four or something after. Uh -huh. After this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Because I do remember it being something about like, machismo needs to be used in a revolutionary way. And the women were like, <laughs> yo, that's not <laughs> what we're talking about, actually. That's not possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they did so much. I, I, yeah, no, I mean, I'm really excited about that part of it, that they... they did so much discussion about what is and isn't useful in terms of like, 
they're basically having the conversation about masculinity versus toxic masculinity. Totally. And there are definite like conversations about gender and about how gender is a social construct. Like that was happening within the young Lords and a lot of conversation learning from gay liberation movements. Like when I read about that, that's Mm -hmm. what really blew my mind and made me be like, Oh my God, I'm so proud that these people are Puerto Rican. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Cause we get presented this like, because of the image of like, well, actually, I mean, mainstream society literally doesn't have an image of the young lords. Mainstream society ignores yeah. them, right? Um, yeah. Or doesn't know about them. And, but when we see like the mainstream image of radicals in the 1960s, you might see a black man with a rifle, right? Uh-huh. Um, and it, and there's nothing wrong with that image, but it's like, yeah, it's like, I didn't know that the Black Panthers specifically teamed up with the Queer Liberation Front until. I I didn't know that either. Yeah. 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 No, they, they've made explicit statements around this time being like, we're with the queers, you know? Wow. And it's this like, yeah, I mean, there's still all kinds of like sexism and machismo, but people are so interested in like looking back and pretending like everything are these divorced movements. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I remember this, no, I'm just completely off script. I remember this conversation I had with this old union miner in West Virginia years ago who was like working against mountaintop removal. Uh-huh. And and I was talking to him and he was like, you know, a coal mining hippie in the 60s. And he's white. And he's like, yeah, in the 60s, we were out there protesting the war. And on the other corners, people protesting for gay rights. And on the other corners, people protesting for black power. And we were like, why are we all in different corners? This is dumb. Let's stand on the same corner. And then we're stronger. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Makes me it happy. Can, it can be that simple. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> and like, as you talked about, and we're going to talk about more about it, and I'll be curious because I think you know more about this part of it than me. The women within this movement had to fight for this inclusion, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they put together the 13-point program and it ends with, we want a socialist society. So there's no like, you can't really pretend like they're reformists, right? Yeah. You know? um, yeah. They were really good at getting reforms, but that wasn't their goal. Yeah. They set up a bilingual newspaper, which they mimeographed themselves before eventually getting it produced all properly. Uh, it was one of the country's first bilingual newspapers. Oh, wow. At its peak, it had print runs of 24,000 copies. Um, Holy shit. Every week, I believe. Um, and it was called Palente, mm-hmm. which I'll read, I'll read what is in the script really quick. Palente <laughs> is slang that means onward, basically, from uh, para adelante. There's a sick hooray for the riffraff song called <laughs> Palente. Maybe you've heard of it, Alinda. I have. It took me two years to write. Oh, really? <laughs> it did. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know if anyone out there is hard on themselves, but you can probably relate to tasking yourself with, I need to write a song that honors this movement and this like, you know, of my ancestors. So I better mm-hmm. write a really good song within like, Four to five minutes that encap- <laughs> encapsulates this, like how much it means to me. So it took me yeah. about two years to do that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. The like, like there's episodes I haven't done of cool people who did cool stuff yet because I'm like, I'm not ready. Yeah. I'm not ready to like cover. I mean, I've done some that I kind of felt that way about Stonewall and the Spanish Civil War and some other things, right? 
but there's some that I'm just like, oh, how the hell am I going to tell this? So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it's a great song. Thanks. Anyone who's listening should go and listen to this song. And great video also. Yeah. The video By my friend Chris Mark. Yeah. I actually originally wrote the script for someone else. And then I used this part of the script to talk about how cool the song is. How people <laughs> should check it out. And then I dragged you on as a guest. Nice. So they start putting out uh, Palente. Actually, do you want to, do you have more of a, I'm like, it's slang. That means onward. Do you, yeah. Is there more that you could say about what I this mean, means? It is true. It's just slang, you know, and it's funny within like, at least the experience of my family, you know, my dad, who was like a total like veteran turned hippie would be like, oh yeah, Palante, like the young lords, you know? And then Mm. other people in my family would be like, that just means to literally go forward. There's like dance songs about that. Why are you getting all wrapped up in this word? You know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like a thing that I feel like for me, I was specifically drawn into that word because of the young lords. And maybe if you don't come from like a super, like a, a nerdy background of mm-hmm. of researching them, you might just be like, that means like, keep it pushing, you know? But because of my mind being like totally blown by learning about them, I was like, this is the word. This is what I need to do. Yeah. Yeah, no, fuck yeah. Speaking of what we need to do, we need to be sponsored by <laughs> the things that we hate in order to eat food and feed it feed the food to the people that we like and ourselves so it's been a particular week of like learning about a bunch of ads that have managed to slip in past our filters oh really Um, so if you're listening to this in ireland and you get an ad for becoming a cop in ireland i'm just gonna gonna go ahead and say i do not support this particular sponsor Wow, that is just trolling. I know. <laughs> that I is know. really trolling you. I know. Especially if it was like, I don't know if it was Northern Ireland or whatever. Like, especially if it was like a Brit- become a British cop in Ireland. Seriously. I would love to know what category they've slipped in under. Because we have like government blocked and like all those categories blocked. Yeah. It's like also- social club. <laughs> a few years back we had the washington state patrol running ads on one of our shows or a couple of our shows and we were like what the fuck like we have all these categories blocked they were under business oh wow which you know just more honest that's just being yeah honest finally (laughs) you're like you're like (laughs) yes uh but yeah yep so (sighs) don't enjoy these ads Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to our life. Here you go. And we're back. And it'll be particularly funny because these ads change over time, right? They're not set when we record the episode. They're set, I think, when you listen to the episode. So what if in the future I start doing host-read ads and I've gone on this long rant and then I come in and I'm like, do you like sandwich cookies? Well, do I have a sandwich cookie for you? The following brand of sandwich cookie is all natural and is exactly what I need when I need sugar. I don't know. I'm not really doing a good job. You're I'm doing an Oreo on. ad? No, I, I would I never. Like, Wait, is this really happening? I didn't want no. to interrupt. <laughs> fam- fam- famous vegan snack, the Oreo. I didn't know it was vegan. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's why the Numino's thing is like, 
not actually a ripoff because having the more organic version is fine. But it's like people are like, Numinos, they're the vegan Oreos. And you're like, as are Oreos. <laughs> I haven't thought of a Numino in a long time. Let me get some. You taught me. You taught me all about the gloriousness that is the Oreo magpie. You literally could do a sponsorship for Oreo if they were owned by an evil corporation. I know. This is the problem. Damn. Like Anyway, the incredible tension of everyone needing jobs in order to yeah. continue to <sighs> live. Um and I like this I have the best job of anyone I know. I feel like, Olinda, you might also identify with having a pretty decent job. It's true. But, yeah. But what most jobs... uh, I'm going to turn this into a proper segue. Wow, brave. Um, What most jobs... What my job actually doesn't offer me, not because... is healthcare. Okay, we're going to talk about healthcare now. Mm. That's, That's my segue. I'm really good at my job. The medical situation for people of color in the 1960s New York was, um... not good. Yeah, devastating. That that's a better word. Yeah, for sure. White medical students used black and Puerto Rican hospitals for training before they moved to work on, you know, people that society actually cared about. Lincoln Hospital, the only hospital at the time in the South Bronx, was called the butcher shop. People would go in there to get a leg amputated and come out with the wrong leg amputated. Holy shit. Yeah. There was no triage in the waiting room of the ER. The paint in the children's ward was lead. We'll talk more about lead paint later. Here's a nice euphemism. People got enrolled into medical studies without their consent. That is the nicest way of phrasing that I can possibly imagine. Seriously. It's it's bad. It's like a really bad thing. So the young lords single-handedly... No, wait... They show up as one player in a larger coalition of groups fighting for health rights. Mm. The East Harlem Health Council, the EHHC. This is actually before they moved to the South Bronx. We're going to come back and talk about Lincoln Hospital a little bit later. Okay. But, so this is when they're still more in East Harlem. They're protesting inside and outside of hospitals about the abuses happening there. And a ton of the medical providers at these hospitals were involved in organizing with the EHHC. Um, just usually not the administration, but the actual doctors and the uh-huh. other, you know, nursing staff and administrative staff and stuff. Administrative staff? I don't know what you call the people who aren't the bosses, but are still administering things. Yeah. I got nothing. Yeah, administrative staff. Yeah. Middle management. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, again, like you have these like people who are like, we're crazy socialists who wear crazy outfits and uniforms and patrol <laughs> like to keep the cops off of our block. And the doctors are like, wait, but you're trying to help people? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, all right, great. We're trying to help people too. How do we help people? You know? Yeah. Yeah. The young lords, they sat down with some doctors at Metropolitan Hospital in Harlem, and they drafted a 10-point health program because, of course, it had to be a 10-point health program because they only have two naming conventions in the young lord, which is one is the 10-point or whatever number point program, and the other one is the the something offensive, like the garbage offensive. Okay. Um, that's, that's now I, I love a good naming convention and there have been great ones throughout history. I just, so I'm not trying to drag them. They just, they have two of them in it, in the 10 point program, they advocate for direct democratic control of the hospital by a combination of its medical staff, its workers and the residents of the neighborhood. No fucking notes. Like seriously, that sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm in. Great idea. <laughs> How do we do it? Also in the 10-point program was like healthcare should be free. What the fuck? Then they formed yet another organization, the Health Revolutionary Unity Movement, or HRUM. HRUM? I think HRUM. Huh. And it might seem sort of odd that they make and join a million organizations, but it's actually kind of an effective decentralization technique that I think this is my own bias coming into it. When they are more effectively decentralized is when they are accomplishing more, from my point of view. There's, or that's my reading of this history. Mm-hmm. They're avoiding putting themselves directly into power. They're keeping power with the people, which is their yeah, yeah. stated goal. And I'm under the impression that they were also learning a lot about what wasn't working with the Black Panthers, who also were looking at their own weaknesses and trying to uh-huh. shore them up. Don't get me wrong. It's also important because while this is a story about how how the young lords won sanitation detox facilities, a patient's bill of rights, it's also a story about how the young lords in conjunction with a huge intersecting swath of revolutionaries and like medical professionals and stuff do so. An awful lot of this healthcare activism was inspired by the Cuban Revolution. Uh, Mm -hmm. A bunch of doctors and young lords had secreted themselves to Cuba at one point or another to see how to create a functioning healthcare system. Wow. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not like a big state socialism girl, but I'm also not a big Mm. capitalism girl and socialist Cuba produced a better healthcare system than the United States has ever managed to do. Yeah. So on December 5th, 1969, they joined a sit-in at the hospital. They're protesting the construction of an emergency room that I could not figure out what was wrong in the emergency room was being done in a bad way. Okay. I don't know. There's so many different times they all take over churches and hospitals and shit that it was like hard wow. to get. Yeah. It's a good problem for your movement to have, being like, I can't keep track of everything they did because they did everything constantly. Yeah. I believe them that the ER was being done in a bad way and that they, it was worth protesting. I have no, everything else they've been right on about. So they didn't win a dramatic change in the construction of the ER, but they won a, a sort of a side demand. Okay. In that the hospital would now pay for one of their doctors to come volunteer at their storefront clinic Whoa. and offer immunizations. Yeah. And then there was something else that they wanted to work on. They, they just like literally worked on everything. They were yeah. focused on lead poisoning. I don't know if you knew this, but lead is really bad for you. Yes, especially for children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is why you shouldn't paint the children's wing of the hospital in lead. Apparently, it's like sweet if you eat it, and that's why kids oh eat it. Oh, my God. Sophie is looking distressed by this. It's tragic. Uh, so lead poisoning, it is fucks you up. Is lead poisoning the original, like, fruit-flavored vape thing? What's, what's, <laughs> I don't, I don't. Maybe there's lead in the current vape. Will we get sued if I make this claim? Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying you don't know, but you might know, but it might be, but it might not be. And that's right. fine. Yeah. We're not in the UK. We don't get, can't get sued for libel. Um, there's probably not lead <laughs> like, in vapes. Like, this podcast airs in, in the UK, Magpie. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not in the UK. Oh, I see. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> the delicate balance. We all walk. Okay. I genuinely have no... Pre- uh, all I know is that vapes are unregular. Right? Are they still unregulated? I don't know shit about this. Pretty I don't. Un- pretty right. unregulated. But lead paint tastes sweet, and that's why kids 
That is all right. I'm looking it up. Lead very paint. Disturbing. That, Does that it really taste sweet? With my day, and it's Monday, and I'm already like, what the fuck? Yeah, lead paint has a sweet taste, which encourages children to put paint chips in their mouths and chew on surfaces like windowsills. Says University of Rochester, the top Google result when I Google lead paint. I bet, that, I, bet I bet animals are drawn to it as well. Mm. That's why animals attack. I'm makes I'm, you violent. Thanks, thanks for bombing me out, Magpie. You're welcome. <laughs> That's the point of this show. Wait, this show no, is not. Well, no, let me talk about how they've stopped it. Oh, That's good. the great thing. They tell stopped me, tell this me, shit. Tell me. All right. So lead fucks it fucks you up. It fucks up your brain. It fucks up your kidneys. It can kill you. Children in poor urban areas were chock full of lead. The paint had been discontinued in the 1940s, but no one was checking poor houses, housing areas to make sure that, like, landlords were getting rid of the lead paint and shit. In New York City, late 1960s, 25 to 35,000 kids were getting fucked up by lead poisoning every year. Wow. Um, and that's just the ones who were, like, it was bad enough or got noticed in that way, right? Of course. One kid, he was two years old. His name was Gregory Franklin. He was killed by lead paint. And basically, since he had been born, his parents had been fighting with their landlord to deal with the lead paint in their house mm -hmm. to no success. And then they lost their child. So the young lords spring into action. They What they needed was a lead offensive. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I know. It's so good. Especially lead offensive because it sounds yeah. like it's going to be about machine guns. But they're still unarmed, except for with that particular tool that we're going to get to later. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> the city had access to a ton of free lead poisoning kits, but they weren't distributing them. Or at least they weren't distributing them in these areas. So during the 1969 mayoral election, the Young Lords announced they were going to do free door-to-door -door testing with these kits, which the city hadn't promised them. They didn't call up the city and be like, hey, can we get some kits? And then say, hey, we're going to do testing. They just yeah. announced the city is going to give us kits. Oh, cool. <laughs> and we are going to do testing. And the government was like, no. So then medical personnel and the young lords did a sit-in at the Department of Health. And they walked out that particular day with 200 kits and I believe started just getting kits from the city. <laughs> wow. Yeah, direct action gets the fucking goods. And they went door to door doing testing for lead. And it was two groups. It was the young lords and then HRUM, the health movement and they the larger coalition that they're part of uh-huh and so they tracked who they who needed treatment and the doctors with them made referrals so they go around and it'd be like young lords um and doctors working together over 30 percent of the kids that they tested uh tested positive for lead exposure uh-huh um, and so then they would sit down and talk with people about their rights and about how to go about and try and get justice and try and get health health needs taken care of. And they did this once a week. Uh, one source says they did it every Saturday. One source says they did it every Tuesday because why would history agree with itself? <laughs> I mean, the answer is because it was a bunch of humans and humans don't remember shit from 40 years ago very clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time. Either way, they, yeah. they were doing it once a week. And yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. I just got really excited. Oh, no. That's all, I, that's all I was saying. It's a great, it's like an incredible thing to do with your time. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's like, even it's like, it's like volunteerism or whatever, right? But it's like fucking direct action. You're going around and helping people and like you're getting to know your neighbors and like, there's just like not a downside. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so they publicized what they found. 
And it became a scandal for the city who had refused to take, had refused to give them the tests, you know? Yeah. So within within months, the city changed its housing codes, stepped up testing, founded the Bureau of Lead Poisoning Control. I think basically because they were like, if you tell the city, like, if you don't take care of people, the socialists will. The city's like, maybe we should take care of the people. <laughs> yeah. Much like you will be taken care of by, uh, let's go with a positive sponsor again. Um, old standby turtles. Turtles are really cute. You want to be sponsored by the by cute little turtles that live free? That live free, like in the wild. Yeah, why not? Like we're just we're thinking cool. about good sponsors to to do little ads for. I'm a fan of turtles. I love how they live for a very long time. Yeah, should probably listen to them more. Yeah, respect your elder turtles. Yeah, that is. This is an ad for respecting your elder turtles. Uh, you should listen to the Methuselah turtles in your life. And then whatever else these other ads are, we didn't approve of. They're an accident. I hope it's all turtle ads. Okay, we're back. My favorite turtle fact I learned is that box turtles stay within a mile or so of where they were born their whole life. Oh, wow. That was local. I just learned it from that ad just now about turtles that we all heard. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> They're just local little guys. Yeah. Keep it local, like a turtle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, let's talk about when they take over a church. I mean, um, around that time, they keep working on survival programs, too, which is what they call the, like, you know, breakfast program and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they wanted to do more, and they needed another base of operations. And also their friend and the Black Panther, Fred Hampton, had just been murdered in Chicago by the police. So oh, wow. they were looking for a place that they could operate that the police probably wouldn't storm in a hail of gunfire. Okay. So they wanted a church. Brilliant, I know. by the way. I know. And I feel like... I always wondered why the church. And that's like a very great point. Yeah. <laughs> Practical point. Yeah. It also is that like, okay, so they're Marxist-Leninist organization, right? Ostensibly and, mm-hmm. and, and practically, but they're clearly doing their own thing. They're, they're things their own way and in their own context. So they're not mm-hmm. an atheist organization like Marxist-Leninism is like supposed to be, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, some of them are atheists. Some of them are not. The Christian church was criticized regularly by the Young Lords for being an instrument of colonization, completely yeah. accurate. But at the same time, they used Christ as a man of the people a lot in their propaganda. Oh, I like it. I like it. Yeah. They had posters. Yeah. I really want one. Um, I, they had posters of Jesus with an AK-47 slung around his shoulder. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Where do we get that? I'm like immediately on eBay. I know. I know. <laughs> um, anyone who's listening, if you have access to these posters, please send them to me and Alinda. Seriously. And I think that some of the radical Catholics are rolling with them at this point. You can hear more about the pacifist radical Catholics in our episode. The pacifist radical, the ones who are rolling with the young lords probably aren't pacifists, but I'm not sure. You can hear more about them in our episode about the burglars versus the FBI that came out recently. So the young lords, they're looking for this new base, and they go to a Spanish church in Harlem. 
and they're like, hey, can we use your space? But the priest at East Harlem's First Spanish United Methodist Church didn't want to let them feed kids there. Uh, he was a refugee from Castro's Cuba, and he was not super lefty. Is a, mm. a way that one could say that. So they went four more times to Sunday Mass, to, and they would participate in Mass, uh, I believe, uh-huh. respectfully. But then they would also, like, speak up and be like, let us feed kids here. Each time the priest is like, no, you, you can't do that. So then they go, I think it's time number five, but I'm not entirely sure. And a young lord tries to speak at the service, and an undercover cop pops up to arrest him because the priest had set up a sting to arrest the young lords Whoa. during mass. So what a dick. I know. So a brawl broke oh, that out. Because <laughs> a brawl broke out between cops and lords in the house of the Lord. Thirteen young lords, eight men and five women were arrested, and five more were hospitalized. Oh, wow. Religious civil rights leaders came out against the church for having set up a sting to arrest the lords the Lords at mass. So the young lords gave up, went home, disbanded their organization. No, um, it stiffened their <laughs> resolve to use the church. And it also turned more of the congregation into supporters of the young lords' request to use the space. The, the congregation of the church was fairly split. Um, okay. And more of the younger congregants were like, fuck yeah, the young lords rule. And more of the older congregants were like, the young lords drool. Totally how they phrased it. <laughs> um, and so the next Sunday, 500 supporters for the young lords waited outside. The young lords met with the church board who started off the conversation by saying racist shit against Puerto Ricans. Um, that's the oh, other wow. like background context to a lot of this, right? It's not just like people yeah. being like, I have slightly more conservative economic values than you, and I don't think it's a good way to help people grow up. No, they're like, you, I'm not going to say it how they would say it. You lazy Puerto Ricans have no work ethic, and that's why you're all poor, and you blow all your welfare money on beer. Um, These are some of the, my paraphrasing of what they've said, you know? Yeah, yeah. Also that it was disrespectful for the um, Afro-Puerto Ricans to have, to wear their hair in Afros was another thing the priests were like, we don't like your haircut. Wow. Way to go out of your, like, your lane, by the way. (laughs) Literally no one's asking you about people's hair, but cool. You're supposed to be talking about Jesus and stuff. Yeah. Famous. (laughs) Like, no one asked you. (laughs) Famous hates people for their haircut, Jesus. Maybe he doesn't God. like frosted tips. I'm not sure. I've never asked him about frosted tips. But, um, so for two more weeks, they keep going to Sunday Mass. Uh, so this is like two months now, right? Then the third week after they've been beaten by cops, uh, it's December 28th, 1969. They mm-hmm. go to a Sunday service and then they nail, nail the doors shut, lock themselves inside, and they basically take the university takeover strategy to the community. And if you remember, this isn't the first time the Young Lords. The Young Lords in Chicago took over a church as well, right? Uh-huh. But it, it certainly gets presented that they're drawing more from their experiences during the Columbia University takeover, which is when Columbia University students led by black, led by black students took over much of the university, which if you want to hear more about, listen to our episode about Up Against the Wall, motherfuckers, the, which I think we just called Up Against the Wall in the title because we're not allowed to cuss <laughs> on the title. Oh, interesting. 
I like that this entire podcast has turned into an ad for other episodes of our podcast. <laughs> I like to see it as weaving the web of history, oh, okay. but it's Fair also, enough. yeah. <laughs> it's also just, yeah. You know, if you want more context. They didn't take hostages. They let anyone out who wanted to leave. They held a press conference and they said that their demand was the ability to run a food program out of the church. And they couched it all in religious language, but without lying. They were like, mm. they weren't like, oh, Christianity is perfect in every way and they're doing it wrong. They're like, look, Christianity became a religion of colonization, but Jesus himself was a man of the people because that's their, their line, right? Mm-hmm. And they echo liberation theology stuff, which you can hear more about in our episodes about Chico Mendez and the fight for the rainforest. <laughs> Now I'm just going to do it to make Sophie shake her head. <laughs> the mayor, this, this is like one of my favorite details of this whole thing. So the mayor has a Puerto Rican aide, like a, a guy who's his point of contact with the Puerto Rican community. Okay. Uh, his name is uh, Arnie Sagata. And, hey. Uh, yeah. Wait, like my? I end up yes. realizing that's my uncle. <laughs> or Wait, is it your uncle? No, I have no idea who Ernie is, but Arnie, it seems Arnie. like we're related. Arnie, Arnie. It okay. seems like we're related, though. Yeah, Arnie Sagata. It's spelled the same way. I had to just double check. I had to look up your own. I had to look up your last name. <laughs> yeah. Remember, I was spelling it right in my head. Because <laughs> I'm like not very good at the double rolled R's thing. And so I was uh-huh. like, oh, maybe I. Anyway, so your uncle Arnie. Oh, God. <laughs> um, Does he suck? I'm worried about No, he's great. <laughs> Oh, good, good, good. You cool. come from okay, Arnie. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. Uh, so he started off not great because he's the mayor's guy. He gets totally. sent. He's the token guy who gets used to quell unrest in Puerto Rican neighborhoods. He was probably uh-huh. on the ground during the trash burning, being like, "Everyone, calm down." So the mayor's like, "Here, go in," and he has this like backpack telephone, this like radio, like military fucking telephone. You know? Wow. Forty minutes later, the mayor's office is like radios him, and it's like. And what the fuck? Where are you? What's happening? And Arnie is like, I think they're right, and I'm staying with them. Oh, cool. And he gets fired, and he stays. Arnie. Yeah. My my man. I gotta, yeah. I'm got i going to like look this guy up on the internet. Uncle Arnie. Write him. <laughs> so they rename the place the People's Church, and the community oh. pours in to discuss what to do about all kinds of shit like evictions to lack of interpretation services at school meetings. Mm. And it was called the church offensive. Wow. (laughs) Um, I really hope that at some point a young Lord became a youth pastor, sat down backwards on a folding chair and said, you know who else had a 10 point program and then talked about the 10 commandments. That's what I hope happened at some point. (laughs) That's really good. So they ran a medical clinic there because, of course, they did, staffed by all their doctor comrades, and they ran their breakfast program plus free community meals every evening for everyone. And so it's like all of these different people from the community coming and bringing in food and sharing it with everyone. It's fucking utopian, like just frankly. Yeah, yeah. They taught classes on Puerto Rican and black history. They set up a loudspeaker facing the street that played speeches from Malcolm X and shit alongside Puerto Rican music. The young lords generally didn't carry weapons, and when they needed security, they... Okay, I want you... I want, you both get a guess again. Sophie, you can't look at the script. I'm not. I'm not. Guess what their weapon was. You're, you're, the flail wasn't correct. The battle axe wasn't correct. Okay. I'll give you a hint. 
turtles. What do you, a, a shell? Like, wait, how? There's, there's, they're just turtles. Out, like they're just out here throwing shells. <laughs> no, what? they have nunchucks. Oh, oh my god! The turtle, the turtle thing was turtle a great power. hint. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah it's, all right. you. Um, it's all right. So they carry nunchucks as their um, as their weapons of choice, which is. I mean, like, frankly, like, it's a scary oh. weapon to carry, but it's, like, not a, you know, it's not a, like, kill you weapon. Yeah. But if someone walks up to me and they're, like, kind of scary anyway, and they have a beret on and they're carrying nunchucks, like, I don't want to fuck with them. Absolutely not. This is, like, also the most New York thing ever, by the way. Oh, yeah? Because, okay. you know, it's just, like, it, it, I mean, it just is in the way that it's this, like, cross-cultural <laughs> Like, oh my God, you're right. Moment, you know, I mean, I'm sure this was coming out of like, at the time, Kung Fu movies were huge. Yeah. You know, like, this is just a really, yeah, yeah, it's just the most New York image in my mind. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, Also, very Warriors energy. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. Which is... I mean, that's their roots, right? It's like they're a crazy gang that wants to yeah. realize that there's more of them than there are cops in this town. So white supporters use their whiteness to pass through police lines and deliver supplies. Oh, wow. And the young lords made sure that no one did any desecrating of the church, and they kept the altar and mm. everything intact. They actually even uh, kept Sunday services, and like the regular congregation was able to come in and use the church on Sunday, even during their occupation. Although only the mm. younger congregants came, right? Because uh-huh. the, uh, the, the people don't like them aren't going to show up. And they held festivals of the oppressed with Puerto Rican music, with poets and musicians and writers and artists. I read something that claimed, this is the kind of thing that I feel like a lot of places might claim origin to, that the spoken word poetry jam, like the whole concept of the spoken word poetry jam was, yeah. de- was developed here. I'd believe it. And if so, this is one of the foundations of hip-hop. Yeah. It's also where the poet uh, Pedro Pietri gave his first public reading of his poem, Puerto Rican Obituary. Which is featured in my song, Palante. Yeah. And there's incredible footage of him reading it, I think, for the first time on YouTube that you guys should check out because it's very moving. Yeah. It is. Even if you're, like, not a, a... a poetry girl, you should go and, and listen to this. Yeah. Yeah. Very much street poetry. You're not going to cringe. It's not like particularly slam yet. You know, it's very, yeah. I remember reading that, that poem for the first time when I was in high school in an anthology of, of called like the outlaws anthology of poetry or something. And reading that poem really was the first time I ever saw Puerto Rican-ness be like so talked about in such a real way in a way that wasn't like a Mickey Mouse way you know I believe you but tell me more what's the Mickey Mouse way um like the way that we were portrayed in media when I was growing up which was Mm -hmm. very like docile and fun and and like it was very J-Lo very Ricky Martin that was like what I grew up with and also like 
literally West Side Story being something that's like, oh, well, you can see us featured in such recent movies as <laughs> West Side Story. And it's like 1998. Yeah. I'm like, why is this the last reference that I have? <laughs> yeah. So it was just very much, you know, I was hanging out in the Lower East Side and Tompkins Square Park and stuff. And, and for the first time being like, oh, my God, the problems that I'm seeing in society now were happening then and and people like me were talking about it and we're experiencing it. And this is like a poem that's expressing that yeah. angst, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was a very powerful moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first time I heard it was in, um, in your song. And then when I like was reading about this, I was like, Oh, cause I was just all, yeah. You know, the connections. So I want to quote about this takeover just to keep talking about how fucking cool it is. From um, the best book on this history that I found was called The Young Lord is is called The Young Lords by uh, Johanna Fernandez. Cool. Quote: Immediately, local grandmothers began delivering pots of food to the Puerto Rican radicals through church windows, while a phalanx of National Lawyers Guild attorneys on site and in the church's periphery filed court injunctions and reminded judges and police of the barricaded radicals' constitutionally protected right to protest, teetering between sacrilege and righteousness. The young lord's unfolding drama was captured by TV cameras parked in the out, parked in and outside of the house of worship. And yeah, because of the National Lawyers Guild, shout out to the National Lawyers Guild who are also still around and doing amazing things, the fight to evict them was held in the courts rather than just like storming the place. Like cuz you like hear about this and you're kind of like, well why didn't they just like storm it, right? And the answer is oh, they, they took it to court. And their strategy which was probably never going to win, but whatever. Yeah, Their strategy was basically a Methodist church is mandated to help people, and that's what we're doing. Mm. And this stalled their eviction, but not for all that long. Uh, I think it's 13 days, maybe, in the end. Um, on January 7th, 1970, the occupants gave themselves up into police custody, walking out of the church. Some of them were singing. Some of them had their fists raised in silence. When presented before a judge, each one corrected the judge the judge's pronunciation of their name, saying their own names in Spanish instead of English, which is such a good fuck you. Totally. They didn't win the use of the church. The church promised to run a daycare center and a drug detox center, but it never did. But they they won yet again. The government's shamed into action. Just as importantly, their power is growing. And we're going to talk about what they did with their growing power. On Wednesday, in the final part of this four-part epic. I don't want it to end. Well, when we come back, we're going to see them overthrow capitalism. And no, I'm just kidding. A combination <laughs> of co repression and internal conflict fueled by authoritarian structuring is going to fuck them up. But their legacy will live on. And when we come back, they're going to take over a fucking hospital. Based? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Alina, do you, do you know what else is based? You're, you're pluggables. My what? Your pluggables. Anything that you'd oh, like to plug? Yes. Well, uh, you can find me on all of the um, social medias. Uh, some of them terrify me more than others, but I'm on Instagram as Hooray for the Riff Raff. That's spelled with a U, H-U-R-R-A-Y for the Riff Raff on Twitter and all the other ones. And I'll be on tour um, this summer on the West Coast and also through the Midwest in July. Oh, yeah. Magpie, anything you want to plug? My other podcast, Live Like the World is Dying, has gone weekly. So oh, if yeah. you're like, how am I going to make it till Monday? 
You can listen to me or one of my other co-hosts on Friday by listening to Live Like the World is Dying. And I'm on social media, even though I hate it. <laughs> as are we Very all. Very relatable. So if you want to participate in either everyone feeling bad about themselves when trying to perform coolness, you can see me on Instagram at Margaret Kiljoy. Or if you want to have bad faith arguments with people making bad faith arguments about you and watch the left devour itself, you can find me on Twitter at Magpie Killjoy. Sophie, what do you got? What do you want to plug? Uh, my beautiful friend Jimmy Loftus has a book coming out, uh, and it is available for pre-order right now. It is called Raw Dog. If you go to any of Jamie's social medias, you can find a link to, to pre-order or request it at your local library. It's probably worth pointing out that it's about hot dogs. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Yep. We'll see you Wednesday. Bye. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. (laughs) And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. 
We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hello. I'm out of jokes to start episodes with. This is Cool People Did Cool Stuff, which kind of sounds like a joke name for a podcast anyway. Uh, But I rather like it. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. With me today on this journey is Alinda Sagata. Alinda, how are you? Doing good. I just ate a snack. Hell yeah. And you're an hour wiser than last time. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Our producer is Sophie. Sophie, how are you? Eh, how are you? Yeah, I'm Compared to like tooth pain recording, antibiotics antibiotics recording is a breeze. Yeah, I feel that as somebody who also is on antibiotics. (laughs) Yeah, this podcast brought to you by amoxicillin. (laughs) (laughs) Close by a Z pack. (laughs) Yeah, fish antibiotics. Yeah, I mean, last legal, but not for human use. Last week I couldn't hear out of my uh, right ear. This week I mostly can. It's great. Yeah. To be clear, I don't believe either of us are on fish antibiotics, and I do not recommend them. Nope. Anyway, that's not even for legal reasons. I just feel guilty when I accidentally make a joke about bad advice. Our audio engineer is Ian. Hi, Ian. Hi, Everyone Ian. say hi, Ian. Stop, Ian. Including you listening to your headphones in a public place, I want you to say hi, Ian. God hates a coward. Say it. All right, Ian, Ian you're exempt from having to say hi, Ian, unless you want to. Our music was written for us by Unwoman. And today, we are talking about the Young Lords, the Puerto Rican socialist organization that is kicking ass and taking names in New York City in 1969-1970. They've just taken over a Methodist church and turned it into the People's Church for 11 days, which I said 13 last time because I wasn't looking at the script and I was coming up with numbers and I came up with the wrong one. They got a lot done for 11 days. I know. There's like multiple festivals of the oppressed that they managed to throw in 11 days. Totally. Could you imagine, like, I would take more than 11 days to organize a festival of the oppressed right now. Uh, yeah. Good year. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, all right, we're getting ready for 2025's Festival of the Oppressed. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Everyone's got to check their schedules. <laughs> so, this action got them national attention and support, and their membership soared, especially in it brought in, again, more women. More than 600 new members came on. And this is an official membership organization as compared to some other things, right? Okay. They would take Puerto Rican people and they would take both non-Puerto Rican black people and non-Puerto Rican Latinx folks from their neighborhoods. Um, Overall, they skewed demographically Afro-Puerto Rican and English speaking at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no value judgment in that. That's just what their demographics were. Yeah. Um, I think it, whatever. They'd already opened a Newark, New Jersey chapter by this point. And soon they opened some in the South Bronx, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Boston, the Lower East Side, and Philly. They lived communally. They ate free meals at dining halls. They had a whole building now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Women and men lived together and organized together and threw down together. And the women worked hard to fight chauvinism in the movement. They would specifically, this is the thing I didn't know until I researched this. They would call people out as male chauvinist pigs. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's one of the first uses of that phrase, male chauvinist pig. 
And something I hadn't realized is that the men, men are pigs rhetoric within feminism doesn't come out of calling men animals. Like, it's not directly calling them the pig, the animal. It's that since the Black Panthers have started calling cops pigs, they're calling wow. men cops when You're they call people You're blowing my mind. Right? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're saying you're being a cop right now. Yeah. <laughs> like that makes a lot more it just like it rings it rings well with me. Yeah. Be yeah. like you are the oppressor right now. You are yeah. oppressing. And it probably fucking stung more than being like cuz when you call men pigs you're like oh you're a pig you're you're gross and being overly yeah. sexual or whatever. Men yeah. are often like, yeah, I am. That's just the way we are, baby. Totally. Right. Bro, chip. As compared to being like, you are acting like a police officer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is not a nice thing to be called. And that helps get men get their shit together, um, as does a woman's caucus, as does an action that did not come up in my research, but you brought up. <laughs> okay. This but then I couldn't. I, I, I researched it online. I couldn't find it online, but... I found a little I, bit claiming that you did? happened. Yeah, but only a little bit, like only a single reference. So you should say what you learned. Okay. I learned this when I went to the Bronx Museum and they had uh, an exhibit all about the Young Lords. And mm-hmm. it was written in their paper that the women had gotten together and they decided if their demands would not be met, where they were able to carry firearms, although you're saying that they didn't really care. Well, some people. So I know, I know. It's like, it's messy. I think that they must have sometimes or something. But anyway. And be treated as comrades uh, instead of servants. And, you know, like Mm -hmm. the way that traditionally their families taught them to treat women, there would be a sex strike. And... You know, this is also acting as if like the majority were straight, but that men would not be able to receive sex anymore from women until they got their shit together. Yeah. Which is Which probably effective. I think is really cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and apparent I don't know if if it went down for a long time or if it was put into effect, but it was definitely printed in the paper. It was definitely like warm. You've been warmed is, yeah. is how it seemed in the paper. So the thing I ran across when I when I did more research after you told me this is that mm-hmm. I ran across like one line that was like in 1970, the women had a sex strike. Okay. Um, but I, I, I don't entirely know. And actually it's interesting. I would trust, well, I would trust Palente more than I would trust a random article that I read yeah. or something else, or even a history book. Um, and so the thing about firearms is really interesting to me because I, there is going to be a point in the script when they kind of take up arms, right? Mm-hmm. And all these other times they're like rolling around with nunchucks. But I bet you that there were times in which they were armed and that just wasn't like fitting the narrative of the way that people want mm-hmm. to talk about things. And like, so I, I don't know, you know. Or perhaps um, it was like education and how to use firearms. Yeah. Might have been the vibe. Like, so I learned that from when I went to the museum. But a lot of what mm-hmm. I've learned is from a book called Palante that I encourage people to get. It's um I have it here, but no one's gonna see it. It's called Voices and Photographs mm-hmm. um of the Young Lords. And it's a lot of interviews and also like uh little, you know, essays that were written in the newspaper. So cool. Um and one of the things that I read was talking about how they believed that how women members wanted to learn how to use firearms and 
not be treated like they weren't warriors. Yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so they're doing all this. After the church, their numbers were up. Um, their numbers became about 35 to 40% women. And there were numerous openly gay members. Mm. And gay members had their own caucus as well. The Black Panthers paved their way on that one, openly stating their allegiance with the gay rights movement and specifically the Gay Liberation Front that had grown out of the Stonewall Uprising, which, yes, you can hear about on our episode about the Stonewall Uprising. (laughs) Um, And, in fact, the Young Lords provided a personal guard to Sylvia Rivera, one of the trans heroes from Stonewall, when she was facing death threats. And this is, it's not... She's also half Puerto Rican. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Just wanted to... Give her a shout out. No, yeah, fucking totally. <laughs> and like, and so I will say that many young lords refused the assignment because they like were transphobic mm-hmm. and didn't understand what the fuck was up. Um, yeah. And they were like freaked out. There's still a long way to go. But other ones accepted it and were Sylvia Rivera's personal bodyguard were young lords and that fucking rules. Yeah. People with jobs gave up more than half their salaries to the group. Because it sounds a little bit culty at this point. Mm. No one, my my theory is no one ever gets anything done without getting a little bit close to the cult line. You shouldn't cross uh-huh. the cult line, you know? Uh-huh. But if the cult line isn't even in sight, you might not be creating a community. It's real messy. Ah, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the cultier things that they did is they did that Maoist self-criticism thing where you're supposed to like stand up and say all the stuff you did wrong to the whole crowd. Oh, I've never heard of this before. It's um, It was a big part of like, like the Cultural Revolution in China, which I don't know as much about as I would like to. This like Maoist self-criticism thing. And what's interesting, actually, if you listen to the, the podcast Behind the Bastards, they talk about a lot of cults. And one of the things that comes up a lot is not Maoist self-criticism, but is this like, stand up at a circle and admit why you're like bad and fell apart from like the group's rules or whatever is like mm. a a way you encourage group thinking and um is from my point of view bad. Yeah. Yeah. And anyone who failed to do this was called a liberal. This is something that like I feel like liberals don't quite always realize is that like the left wing also calls liberals liberals in a negative way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like every now and then I'll say something's like liberal and people are like, fuck you, right winger. And I'm like, what? <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's during this period of growth that you start seeing the cracks that are later going to fuck it up, at least by the mm-hmm. convenient narrative that I'm drawing and have read in other sources. The New York Lords were given full autonomy by the, quote, Central Committee of Chicago, right? Because it still had started in Chicago, even though it's bigger okay. in New York. But New York is pretty sure that they should be the central committee and that the chapter shouldn't, shouldn't have full autonomy, that the New York chapter should be in charge of all the other chapters, and that more discipline was needed. Um, and also, the Chicago newspaper wasn't coming out regularly enough. What are you all doing? You better get on that. Hmm. So the, the New York chapter starts getting kind of controlling. Mm-hmm. And then another thing to understand about their politics. And I I try to avoid like, let's talk about Marx, right? But along with the Black Panthers, the Young Lords were a break from traditional Marxism in that they identified the lumpen proletariat as the revolutionary subject, which means that I have to break down really quickly Marx's ideas about classes in which you have the proletariat who are industrial workers in the city. They all 
And Marx thinks that these are the bee's knees. They're the best. Everyone else sucks, according to Marx, right? Then you got the bourgeoisie, a class whom no one who is alive can spell correctly. <laughs> and yeah, they are, I still, Bo, Urgy, O-I-Z. Oh my God. I, I, thank you, spell track. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a very long time to wrap my head around hierarchy. More importantly, thanks talk to speech talk to text speech apps for words you can't spell. Oh, that's you clever. That's your a phone, good idea. Bourgeoisie. <laughs> like you don't even have to think about it. <laughs> the bourgeoisie are the owning class. They don't work for a living. This is their distinguishing characteristic. Instead, they own stuff for a living. Mm. Definition of capitalism in this case being roughly the access to capital being how you make money rather than work, right? Um, and then you've got two other weird classes. You have the petty bourgeoisie, who are like the small business owners. They're not running the show, but their relationship to capital is different from that of a worker. Marxists generally don't like them. And then you have the lumpen proletariat, who are objectively the coolest. Uh, Marx does not agree by this with this. These are the unemployed and the thieves and the beggars and the people whose work is illegal, like sex workers. Mm. The, the criminal class. And... Marx doesn't like them, right? But the Young Lords and the Black Panthers do. Mm. Personally, I like to think that Marx's classes are like he's writing a role-playing game instead of paladins and wizards. You have petty bourgeoisie and the lumpen proletariat and shit. And so from this point of view, we clearly need everyone. Maybe not the regular bourgeoisie, I don't know. But you just clearly you can't have a party of only thieves or only wizards. It's not as much fun. There's my class unity. <laughs> statement of the day. Oh, God. Anyway, the Black Panthers like the Lumpen Proletariat. The Young Lords like them. The New York Young Lords claim to like them, but part of what they're mad at Chicago about, because the Chicago clearly comes out of them. They are, they come from the criminal class. The Young Lord okay. comes. Yeah, of course. This was not a bunch of workers sitting around being like, man, I don't like how the boss is treating me. You like how the boss is treating me? It's a bunch of car thieves who are like, Let's stand up against racism and try and get everyone some health care. You know? Yeah. And the New York Lords don't quite have a, quite the same background as relates to that. Um, and so part of why they're mad at Chicago is that Chicago is still too criminal and gang-like and they're not good proper revolutionaries. Mm. So by May 1970, they sever ties from the Young Lords Organization of Chicago and they become the Young Lords Party. It is very likely that this split was orchestrated by COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program of the FBI. Oh, wow. It was almost certainly encouraged by them. The, the disagreements existed, but COINTELPRO existed to make those disagreements grow, right? Mm -hmm. Back in Chicago, uh, Cha-Cha is taking it hard. Um, he was close friends with Fred Hampton, who had just been murdered. And now he's getting told he's too gangster for the group he turned from a gang into an organization. Uh, but he keeps it civil and no fights break out between the cities. Um, so it's a, it's a break, but it's not a war, right? Okay. But they've got all these political things brewing. There's all of these fractures that are starting to form. It doesn't stop them from doing really cool shit. One of the cool things they do is they get into a fight with a long-standing friend of the podcast, tuberculosis. <laughs> For anyone who's just learning now, 
What happened when I started making this podcast is I started reading a lot more history books and I started learning that everyone dies of tuberculosis. That's just how you die. Everyone, if you're in a history book, you either get killed by the state or you get killed by tuberculosis. (laughs) You forgot the third or your or or your lover. What? There's tuberculosis, the government or your lover. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. That's the trifecta. There's no other way. No, I I can't see how else I could die. Um, (laughs) As long as it's not some combo move. Ooh, uh, ooh! You'd be like, you'd be living a really weird life. That the COINTELPRO really infiltrator is like coughing into handkerchiefs and yeah, yeah. Plus, I don't know about that government thing. That seems that seems uh, not 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 for cause for you. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be. You would be very far from that. My plan is to not be killed by any of these things. Yeah, let's all. go with that. Um. Yeah. So tuberculosis or TB, as it's called by its friend. Friends, <laughs> or consumption when it's out of the goth night. We talked about this in our Alan Hart episode. The first ever known trans man to receive gender affirming surgery saved millions of lives by revolutionizing the way that public screening was done for tuberculosis decades before today's story, mm-hmm. um, specifically by using x rays to, to screen ahead of time. What is TB? Well, it's a bacterial infection. It sits around latently. Sometimes it pops up with symptoms and shit. It kills about half of its victims if you actually get the symptoms. For those keeping track at home, that's about a 5% mortality rate overall, which is brutally high. Today, we have antibiotics, and no one dies of it anymore. Just kidding. It kills a lot of people still, mostly in other parts of the world. Uh, It killed 1.5 million people in 2020. It is the number one deadliest infectious disease after COVID-19. It's the number one preventable infectious disease. Preventable with vaccines, treatment with antibiotics, um, and screening, things like that. Um, so everyone who dies of it is murdered by capitalism, from my point of view, because it, you don't have to die from it, it, except for access to care. So the young lords, they go to war against two of the biggest enemies of this show, capitalism and fucking tuberculosis. Let's go. Yeah. It's a real problem in the poorer areas of New York City, thanks to stale air and overcrowding and lack of access to screening. Mm. So in addition to -to door-to-door lead poisoning tests, they start testing people for TB, which involves an x-ray machine. So they send a petition around, and it gets them use of one machine, but it's a stationary machine. They want a mobile unit. They want like a van with an x-ray machine in it. Like the x-ray van that goes around the city already, but is inaccessible to poor people of color. One book I read says it was inaccessible because it was it operated from 12 to 6 p.m. and didn't accommodate working people's schedules. But the guy who stole the van, um, I listened to an interview with him. Oh, spoiler alert. Wait, steal the van. Um, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, did we skip a chapter? What's happening here? <laughs> we'll get to that. The guy who steals the van later in the story, he says in an interview that it was inaccessible because it only went to white neighborhoods. And that feels a little bit more truthful once again giving a shout out to the the thief the thief class (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) so on june 17th in 1970 they steal the van they unfurl a puerto rican flag on it and they drive it off uh they tipped off the press ahead of time to make sure everyone saw them steal this van (laughs) (laughs) people don't do like crime like they used to for better and worse (laughs) yeah um, 
They parked it. They were really subtle. They parked it across the street from their office. (laughs) (laughs) And then announced free testing for everyone. And I think the techs who worked in the van were like entirely fine with it. They're just like, whoa, cool. This is the coolest thing that's happened to me ever. (laughs) I know. (laughs) They've been like, I'm so bored. (laughs) And now I'm part of some like crazy shit on the news. And I still just get to help people for a living. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Within hours of stealing the van, they won. The director of health of the area agreed to let them keep the van and run it on the city's dime 12 hours a day, every day. Wow. The first day, they tested hundreds of people. Wow. Yeah. And around that time, well, before we move them to the South Bronx, we should move everyone to these killer deals about stuff. Job opportunities. You could go become an Irish cop. Um. So many options. Here, listen to these options. Don't press the forward 15 seconds button. That has no influence on anything from my point of view. Here's some ads. And we're back from those enlightening ads. I tried to come up with something clever, but I got nothing. So I'll just tell you about when they moved to the South Bronx. Because... There's yet another health epidemic for them to deal with because they really just fucking did it all. Like, I, I can't it's get like, over it. Also, like, the number of issues that this community was facing, like, as it just, like, really boggles my mind, being like, wow, I grew up in that city. Yeah. And, like, these are all people, like, my parents' age, you know? Yeah. Do your parents' age, like, people, like, talk about Lead poisoning and tuberculosis and yeah. unclean streets and for sure. Yeah. And a lot of like how the Bronx was burning, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of like faulty electricity and just you know, like a lot of issues like that for sure. Okay. Is that what yeah. was the Bronx burning because of faulty electricity? There was like a lot of safety hazards, but also a lot of like slum lords that were setting sh- you know, just like letting yeah their buildings burner being the reason why their buildings were burning. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of my, my family definitely talked a lot about these issues. Okay. I don't know whether you want to say this in error. Is your family from East Harlem or is it from South Bronx or is it somewhere else? Uh, They're actually from Chelsea. Okay. Yeah. They grew up in the Chelsea projects. Okay. You know, my, they were born, my dad was born and my aunt were, was born in Puerto Rico, but came mm-hmm. over when they were very young. My grandfather came over and was like working at first and then was able to pay for everybody to come. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, I I hadn't, re- as a white outsider in New York City, I hadn't realized the degree to which Puerto Rican um, identity shaped the city and all different parts of the city, you know? Um, and like the Lower yeah. East Side, like doesn't even really necessarily come out much in the story, even though they had a Young Lords had a chapter in Lower East Side, even though that was a Puerto Rican neighborhood, you know, yeah. at this point, which heavily influences all of the like hippie culture stuff that was happening in that area. At the oh, time. totally. Yeah. Like talking to my dad when I would mention like hanging out in the Lower East Side or Tom- Tompkins Group Park or squatting or mm-hmm. anything, you know, 
to him, he was just like, oh, yeah, me and my friends like did all that shit, but we were cooler than you guys. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just some like, yeah. But, you know, you think about the uh, the New Yorican, the New Yorican Poets Cafe, mm-hmm. like that's in the Lower East Side still. Um, I don't know how, but I'm so glad that it's still with us. Yeah. Um, and that was born out of this movement, you know? Yeah. Is New Yorican a name of an identity for New York Puerto Ricans? Is that the... Yes. So a lot of the people that you're talking about who are, you know, joining the Young Lords at this point who mm-hmm. don't speak Spanish, for example, like... That would be a really great uh, representation of like a New Yorican. Although, of course, there are New Yorkans that do. Mm-hmm. But it's like a very specific, like, doesn't have extremely strong ties to the island. Like, even my dad, who was born in Puerto Rico, felt like he wasn't Puerto Rican enough. And then also he was an outsider in his own city. Okay. So it's like the they you know this idea that you don't quite fit into anything because you're always a little bit of an outsider. So New Yorkian was born. Yeah. I mean that makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like the uh diasporic identity is like this thing that often grows in New York or at least I know that like the diasporic identity of like Jews I mm-hmm. um or Jewish people like grew in New York City in a lot of ways uh, as an identity that was separate from anything else it was like this is the diaspora is like who we are i don't know whether diaspora is a yeah. word that people use in this context or not oh definitely okay yeah yeah and also there's a lot of like longing for like you know when you talked about how the young lords were teaching puerto rican history like mm-hmm. that was something that was i mean to this day is so hidden from anybody who is puerto rican or new Yorkian, like just this feeling that you come from a place that is so foreign to you and you you want to learn about it, but it, it's it been hidden or kept away. Yeah. Yeah. It, it Like, because America has this, like, public school systems has this, like, one monolithic educational idea of what we teach people, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, rather than teach people Puerto Rican history, we teach people about, like, Paul Revere or whatever the fuck, you know? Like, yeah. Um, and it's just interesting because, like, a really high percentage of people who live in the United States are not descended from the Revolutionary War fighters, yeah. you know? Yeah. Or have at least other, just whatever, anyway. Yeah, I am I guess I should start a podcast where I talk about history that isn't <laughs> talked about as much. Sophie, well, you want to help me do that? This entire podcast is just propaganda and it's you just advertising for your own show on your own show. It's incredible. The self-promotion is awesome. Um, I haven't worked the name of my book into any of these scripts. No. I'm very proud of that. Okay. So, they've just stolen a van. <laughs> that makes it very, like, not much happened. Oh they God. just changed I, the way. Go ahead. I just love how much they like play chicken with the city. They're just like, yeah, of course we could like go to jail for a really long time for a Grand Theft Auto or something. Or yeah. maybe they'll just give us what we want. I know. I know. Um, I can't imagine any of this working and then it keeps working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they go to the South Bronx. Uh, or rather, a branch opens in the South Bronx, and I don't know if the, how many individuals are specifically moving, right? And there's a problem that needs to be dealt with in the South Bronx, 
heroin. Mm. Uh, the state wasn't doing a very good job of helping people who are addicted. Instead, it criminalized people. Um, the South Bronx in spring 1970 had the highest heroin addiction rate in the world. 15% of people who lived there were addicted to heroin, according to one number I heard. Other numbers that I heard included the South Bronx had a mortality rate 50% higher than the rest of the country. Syphilis and wow. gonorrhea, six and four times the national average. And overdose was the leading cause of death among adolescents and young adults. Oh, wow. And this is the kind of thing that we see reflected more later in the opioid crisis on a like wider scale, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing that the Young Lords did, they're like, all right, we're going to deal with heroin addiction. That's what our community needs. That's what we're going to do. They got an apartment. They cleaned it up nice. And they started screening drug users for commitment to sobriety. And then two Young Lords would keep watch over. They just set up a detox center. Uh, or a cold turkey center, really. Yeah, this yeah, is their yeah. first first attempt. Two young lords would keep watch over the detoxing people for 24 hours a day and help them quit cold turkey. Then each person in recovery was assigned a mentor who was available to them 24 hours a day for the next six months. Damn. They also robbed drug dealers and scared them off the block, which got the mafia mad at them. But they somehow had enough power that they didn't get any... No one got killed as a result of this that I'm aware of. This is so wild to me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I it's, keep it's waiting for, like, when is someone going to get assassinated by one of the many powerful forces who don't want change to happen? I, I am not aware of it happening. Yeah. I, like... And I, I, one of the things that often underlies a lot of history that doesn't get left in, like, is people working with the mafia or, like, mm -hmm, all these different mm -hmm. radicals, like, working with different power structures, right? And that's, like, often left out because it's not as, like, sexy or it's criminal yeah, yeah, or yeah. whatever, right? So probably they're doing something that is making the mafia not attack them. But I believe the mafia is mad at them. So I believe that that something is not working with the mafia. Okay. If I were to guess, and I expect I'm wrong, uh, it probably is just literally like, we are scary and there's a lot of us and we are tied in with the Panthers and we are tied in with them up against the wall, motherfuckers. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The city is full of angry revolutionaries. That's my best guess, but I don't yeah. know. You know, I know at around the same time, for example, the up against wall motherfuckers are like scaring off mafia hits by having more guns than the people trying to kill them. You know, wow. but yeah, so they're robbing drug dealers and scaring them off the block, which is also really hard to morally understand in a situation that predates the war on drugs. Right. Because mm -hmm. right now, during the war on drugs. When people talk about like, oh, we're going to like go fuck up all the drug dealers, you're like, oh, you're going to go fuck up drug users who are like fucked by society. Congratulations. You're the same as the fucking war on drugs. Yeah. But when we're not in that context, I don't fucking know. Just like straight up, I don't know, you know? Yeah. But the cold turkey approach wasn't going to work with everyone. The medical problems that people were facing were bigger than just heroin. So they needed something more. They needed something bigger, like, like a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> the South Bronx had one hospital, Lincoln Hospital. It was built in 1898, the same year that the U.S. stole Puerto Rico from the Spanish. Uh, this is the place that I was saying gets called the butcher shop. It's the wrong mm -hmm. leg amputated whoops shop with lead paint for the children to eat. And it's the kind of place where the ER doesn't do triage. 
There's no translators on staff, no accommodations for non-English speaking patients. But the best part, and this is not sarcasm, the actual good part, was that some reformers had set up a fairly groundbreaking mental health clinic there that emphasized talk therapy and actually hearing patients out. Oh, wow. So it's kind of a battleground spot already. In March 1969, before the Lords arrived, the Lords did a lot and they deserve a, a ton of the credit. But by tying into existing infrastructures and working with other groups. Uh-huh, uh-huh. In, not, in March 1969, the mental health clinic had taken itself over. The workers, mostly people of color, had seized the building and kicked out the director and his upper staff. The, yeah, the doctors, wow. including white doctors, which is most of them, this is the late 60s, uh, supported the action and kept working. And they held it for three days. And the Black Panthers uh, ran security and brought supporters. This is before the Panther 21 trial took the wind out of the New York City Panthers. Just would like to say that I am really loving these stories of like doctors standing with their staff mm-hmm. and like standing up to administration and their bosses. Yeah. It's really, I, I encourage all the doctors out there who might be listening to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Because we really need it. Yeah. This particular takeover was broken when the city, I don't even think the administrator is the hospital, the city was like any doctors who practice here will lose their licenses. But the action did get, a bunch of workers had been fired um, and it got the fired workers unfired and Mm. the director was transferred out. So it was like successful to some degree, right? By 1970, some of the workers there were young lords themselves. And some of these workers set up a a complaint table for workers and patients in the ER. 12 hours a day, they were there at this table. On weekends, they were there 24 hours a day. Wow. And they kept getting kicked out, and they kept coming right back in. There's, like, interviews you can hear about, like, the people, like, kind of being friends with the security guards. Like, ah, I'm kicking you out again. They're (laughs) like, all right, I'm going to be right back in. And like, all right, have fun, you know. (laughs) So they set up this complaint table. They get 2,000 complaints in a month. Wow. And they just start acting on them, like all the ones that they can. They just direct action, get the goods, install privacy screens in the bathrooms. They move trash off the street outside and into the director's office because this is what you do with trash. Whoa. Yeah. The, the medical staff who were part of this organization, I think this is Atrium, but I'm not, I, I'm not 100% certain the larger organization that's doing this. Uh-huh. The medical staff just start doing triage in the ER, like when they're not at work. They're just like, we're triaging. Fuck this. Oh, wow. An ER needs triage, uh, which um, I did not l- learn this word as, until I was an adult. Triage is when you determine which patients are the most injured and who needs medical care most immediately. So they put pressure on administration for better care for the workers. But there was a wall. They couldn't get anything systemic fixed. They could only... Like, Band-Aids, people are like, oh, it's just a Band-Aid. Like, Band-Aids are great. They stop bleeding. You can keep infection out. Like, Yeah. But they don't address systemic issues. So they did what they had to do with a really interesting security culture method. On July 13th, 1970, 150 young lords met in an apartment and locked themselves in so that no infiltrators could get out and give anyone a heads up. Because they knew they were infiltrated. It's the fucking, it's 1970, you know? Uh Uh-huh. And so not all of them knew the plan going in. They all get told the plan, but they can't call out. At 3.30 a.m., they pile into a U-Haul and a bunch of cars. They backed up to the hospital loading dock. They opened the doors. They stormed the hospital. 
with nunchucks. Oh, uh, this episode brought to you by nunchucks. I know <laughs> how cool they are. I know. For some reason, most retaliates leave the nunchucks out. That's a mistake. Hell yeah, nunchuck radicals. You get it. Okay, I'll tell my one nunchuck story. Please. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm like 22 or something, and I'm like living in the basement of this house with some hipsters, and they have this party, and I'm avoiding it. I'm hanging out in the basement. And at one point, someone comes down. At this time, I'm like, all I'm doing is like studying martial arts and trying to stop a war and all that shit. And they come down and they're like, Magpie, this guy won't leave and he's harassing people. He's like harassing this woman. You have to kick him out. And I'm like, okay. And so I'm like in my my sleeping dress and I just like walk upstairs with a pair of nunchucks and I'm like the weird kid in a dress from the basement who hasn't been at the party. And I just like walk up. I think I have a beard at the time. And I'm just like, hey, you better leave. And the guy's like, I'm already gone. <laughs> and he runs away. I don't it know works. how to use nunchucks. I do not know how to use nunchucks at this point in my life. I just have them. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a, a power move of like, who's going to assume that you don't know how to use them? Yeah. You know, like if you're pulling them out, just visually you'd be like, that person knows how to use those. Yeah. Like... Um, bluffing is a very effective thing. As we learned from the young lords, like sometimes you just yeah. gotta try it. <laughs> Storm a hospital with nunchucks. What could go wrong? Yeah. So they secure the entrances. They barricade shit. They still let workers and patients in and out of the building. Just they're controlling uh-huh. it. They set up screening clinics for tuberculosis and lead poisoning and uh, anemia. Um, they set up a daycare and a classroom because one of their whole mm-hmm. things is that they believe that Kids should get childcare while their sole caretaker is in the hospital. It's wild, I know. They hung up a banner, Welcome to the People's Hospital, and a Puerto Rican flag. They hadn't tipped off the hospital workers, or it wouldn't have worked, right? Uh But the hospital workers were down. The physicians backed them. They hated working for the butcher shop because they became doctors to help people. Yeah. Even the chief administrator was like, well, I mean, I kind of got a point. Like, wow, no one likes working at the butcher shop, you know, except like Sweeney Todd or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Somebody really liked that reference. (laughs) Thank you, Magpie. (laughs) You're welcome. Did that one for you, apparently. Apparently. So they they call for a press conference. I'm sorry. It was so perfectly timed. (laughs) (laughs) So they call for a press conference and they explain themselves to the press and they give their demands, which is like door-to-door health care, better pay for workers, daycare for patients and workers, hurry up and build a new hospital. Mm. I did not find a name for this action. I assume it was the Lincoln Offensive or the Hospital Offensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They held it for about 12 hours. The negotiations with the police were going very badly. Uh, undercovers were trying to infiltrate into the hospital. So, so they left. And rather than letting themselves get mass arrested, they put on white coats and slipped out with the doctors, covered by supporters from inside and outside. Yeah. Oh. And once the cops realized they'd been duped, they combed the area for the lords. But people in the neighborhoods took them in. Only two participants out of 150, 200 participants got fucking caught. 
Wow. Good fucking odds. I would take those odds. Seriously. Nothing changed immediately. Then, three days later, a patient named Carmen Rodriguez died during an abortion at the hospital. The resident, a student doctor, didn't look at her chart and her pre-existing conditions and performed the wrong kind of abortion. And then when she responded badly, doubled down on mistreating her. And a few days later, July 19, 1970, she died of negligence. Oh, wow. This is something I've read about. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking heartbreaking. Like, I... I don't know, just especially yeah. the, the doubling down and shit, especially like. I mean, there's also just a really painful history of sterilization of Puerto Rican women. Um, and just a, it was a part of what like the women of the Young Lords would talk about in mm-hmm. when they would talk about the women's movement and women's liberation. Is they would make a very clear distinction between upper class women's liberation and how like the Young Lord women, of course you know, stood for abortion rights, but they also were like, we have to be very clear about our experience of, you know, being forcefully sterilized. Like a lot of yeah. Puerto Rican women getting sterilized in, um, who worked in factories and just without their knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a part of the history uh, and it's just such a recent history, yeah. you know, of Puerto Rican women. Yeah. No, it's something that I didn't really understand when I first started doing some of this research about like, um, you know, I was doing, well, now I feel self-conscious about it, but I did an episode about, about the Jane Collective. Okay, Sophie, <laughs> um, that you can go listen to. <laughs> oh, it's and, so fun. <laughs> and one of the things that I didn't realize going into that research was how I had only read about the, um, you know, the Panthers and, and Black liberationists had very complicated relationships with abortion rights um, mm-hmm. because- And the pill. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because they're like, we're trying to avoid a cultural genocide. We yes. want to, like, freedom to reproduce was what more of them were fighting for as compared yes. to more white women were fighting for freedom to control, to not reproduce. And any logical look at it is, well, we want bodily autonomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Um but childcare like goes into it as well because from what I read, like women in the Young Lords would talk about how working class people deserve to be able to have children, and mm-hmm. that include that means that we will need to set up community childcare, you know, because that is the only way that we can that if you're not incredibly wealthy, it, they were just saying it, it shouldn't be a barrier to be to starting a family. Yeah, which you know. Yeah, so it's just, it's a really, yeah, it's this painful part of, it It just really moves me that there was so much, like, mind-blowing growth and, like, just what these people are experiencing, you know, like, so quickly within a generation. Yeah. Well, well, that's an awkward place that I have to stick an ad transition. <laughs> but I do. So, here's some ads. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And yeah, we're talking about how uh, Carmen Rodriguez died um, at the hospital three days after the takeover. And so this led to the most enduring and wide-reaching legacy of the Young Lords, um, HRUM, the radical group of medical professionals that the Young Lords are part of. They draft a new document, and they call it the Patient's Bill of Rights. And it says... You deserve to be treated respectfully, to have your treatment explained, that you can refuse treatment, that you can see your chart, that people deserve door-to-door preventative care, that people can pick their doctors, that you should get free food with your care, that there should be daycare, and that healthcare should be free. This is obviously that makes not sense to me. <laughs> I know. You look at that and you're like, that yeah. I'm in. Like this is not the patient's bill of rights we have today in the US. Um, specifically uh-huh. the 
the free stuff part didn't really survive. <laughs> yeah. yeah, still working on that. But some of this other stuff I have always taken for granted. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't. I don't want to talk about my own family history too much. Um, but it's like it, it, it makes sense to me that, of course, you get to have your treatment explained. Of course, you can refuse treatment. Of course, you can see your chart. Like, of course, you can pick your doctor. Why would I mean, I'd, yeah, again, complications around financial barriers. But it, of course, you can refuse treatment. It's like such a clear example of that, that looking back, you're like, what do you mean? Why would yeah. anyone ever have thought it was okay to sterilize someone without their consent? Like, yeah. how is that not yeah, the same that's as not shooting treatment. someone on the street? Yeah. <laughs> that's called something else. Yeah. So they start pushing for this Bill of Rights. Um, and one thing that I find so fascinating about this story is that, you know, the young lords aren't reformists. They believe in a socialist revolution. But by mm -hmm. not coming to the table to beg for scraps, but by demanding everything, they accomplished more reform than reformists tend to. Mm. Which I would say, keep in mind, reformists. You should pretend to be socialist revolutionaries if you want reform. Make it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> so, they do this. But they're still, they haven't gotten their health, their, their harm reduction clinic, which they haven't called that yet, but leads mm. to that kind of framing. So they have a better idea than their cold turkey clinic. Uh, not that the other day it was bad. It just didn't work for everyone. They got Lincoln to sponsor a drug detox center. They succeeded by asking nicely. Just kidding. <laughs> On November 6, 1970, they occupied the sixth floor of one of the buildings of the hospital and set it up with the help of doctors into a detox facility. Wow. 15 They're like, we're back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, 15 people were arrested. So then other one, other people came back the next day and they set it up again. And this time it stuck. This gets called the first harm reduction clinic. And they used a novel approach in which addiction was seen as a social problem and not as individual weakness. Oh, wow. Um, soon they're treating 600 people a week at this clinic. And it, <laughs> and it starts as a methadone clinic and becomes an acupuncture clinic. And it lasted for eight years. It outlasts the young lords, and it ends up staffed by many people who'd been through the treatment themselves. And is this, so this is the beginning of NADA acupuncture. Please explain. Okay. I do not know what NADA, N-A-D-A stands for. I will mm -hmm. just say that. NADA but... detox. No, wait, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> it's something that I've, it's like ear acupuncture that I've okay. received when I was like, um, you know, like they used to do it at the drop-in center mm -hmm. um, when I was like a young homeless teenager. And it's, I didn't know that this was created by the young lords or that this is, you know, the um, treatment yeah. was like formed with the young lords. And it was like, how do we bring accessible, uh, effective acupuncture to working people or lower class people? Yeah. I am. I believe that that is the case. That this is these are the pioneers of doing that in the United States. It's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They just fucking did everything. I actually didn't end up writing into this script more about how the patients' bill of rights developed out of what they did. There's so much that I didn't get to. You know, it's like yeah. I, I didn't get to follow these threads as far as I want. You know. Yeah. Yeah. 
So let's kind of talk about their decline, unfortunately. But Sigh. they have so much lasting impact. So whatever. If you ride high for two years and then burn out and change everything along the way, so it fucking goes. And we can learn from yeah. them. Yeah. So these two years are kind of the high point of the Young Lords. COINTELPRO was fucking with them really hard. Uh, they found an easy target in the culture of obsessive discipline and self-criticism and central authority that was, I think, building and growing, but I could be wrong. Okay. That could be the read of stuff I'm reading. One of the central leaders, Philippe Luciano, mm-hmm. he's practically the face of the group. He was demoted after cheating on his wife, um, who was one of the other leaders. They had set really strict rules about who, who could talk to the press. And so a COINTELPRO agent hap- pretended to be one of the Bronx leaders speaking to the press. Like, oh, hey, wow. I'm this guy, and I'm speaking to the press. And then, so then the other leaders are so mad that this guy spoke to the press, even though they have strict rules about who can speak to the press, and he wasn't on the approved list. Because I wasn't him. Yeah. But so he's in trouble. Wow. And, oh, and the thing that he supposedly spoke to the press about was about how Philippe had been demoted because he was a male chauvinist with unclear politics. So they're like stirring up the shit, right? Which is like on his Wikipedia page because I looked it up. Oh, yeah. I thought he's a male chauvinist who was, yeah. Yeah, like the quote. Um, so it's interesting to know Yeah, where this is coming from. Um, yeah, I mean, like, and he, overall, COINTELPRO likes to find existing cracks and expand them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so you can look at that two ways. We could be like, well, we're vulnerable to federal infiltration if we have sexists, which is true. Mm-hmm. You can also look at it as we're vulnerable to um, federal, we're vulnerable to this shit if we're so quick to, well, I don't know, get into murky waters, but like, you know, we're so quick yeah, to like yeah, get yeah. mad at everyone about these things and we have so many controls about all of these things, you know? And so it's like demoting a leader because he's sexist is not bad, but the way it was handled was manipulated by the feds most likely. Uh, within a month, he left the organization that he'd started, or had a hand in starting. Yeah. Things start to get darker. On October 17th, 1970, the young Lord Julio Roldan, he's found it hanging in a cell in the tombs. Um, and he's one of eight, quote, suicides that year in the tombs, one of whom had somehow fractured his own skull while hanging himself, uh, if you believe the police, which I don't. So when Julio died, a thousand people came to his viewing. At his funeral march, the onlookers chanted, and this chant rules, Fuego, 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 los Yankees quieren fuego. Fire, 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 the Yankees want some fire. Whoa. (laughs) Which is hard as fuck. Yeah. They're like, oh, you want want some fucking smoke, huh? Yeah. Wow. So... It's at this point in the narratives that I've read that they pick up the gun more literally. Okay. The funeral stops for a second viewing at that Methodist church they'd once occupied with nothing but nun trucks and community support. They go into the church. They open the casket. Alongside his body is an arsenal of guns. In the casket? <laughs> yeah, that's how they hit it. Yeah, that's how they got into the church. Whoa. Um, they stuffed his casket full of, uh, full of weapons. And they use it to occupy the church. Their first and foremost demand was an independent investigation into Julio Roldan's death. Mm -hmm. The other demands were let us set up a legal defense center here, and also the city needs to let clergymen visit people in prison and investigate prison conditions. 
And so a diverse group of clergy took the demand to the city. The city was like, you know, fuck you. So then 18 clergy members joined the armed occupation because they were like, oh well, the city's God. not listening to us. You're the only way to get anything fucking done. Yeah. And I started this off by being like, oh, they're getting this darker. It's during the decline. I feel like I almost, I feel kind of bad using this as like, because it's an escalation, but it's not, I am not putting moral judgment on this particular choice and escalation. Yeah. Right. They weren't trying to go down in a blaze of glory and they started negotiations. Older women from the neighborhood secreted out the guns in pieces, basically, like, because they were like, wow. we're going fucking down. We don't want to all get murdered. So, like, yeah. piece by piece, all the guns get disappeared. Negotiations picked up. The city gave in and started an independent investigation into the death of Julio Roldan. And the independent report was, was clear. Julio did hang himself, mm. in, at least according to this investigation. In 27 pages, some excerpted in the New York Times, it said basically, and I paraphrase, he killed himself because the tomb, is, the tomb is a fucking nightmare pit that drives people to suicide. Mm. And mainstream news articles basically were saying like, yeah, sometimes suicide is murder. This is such a case. You put someone in this terrible of a situation, you are killing yeah. them, even if, even if Julio most likely hanged himself. I bet that one who cracked his own skull didn't fucking hang himself. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it. They held the church for two months. Uh, until December 1970. This is a year after the last time they held the church, you know? And it, and they did their thing there. They fed people. They offered free legal help. Radical priests started showing up and doing stuff there. But the organization started to, de- to decline after this. They followed a familiar course. To quote author Johanna Fernandez, the movements were on the path of decline. Others saw mounting state repression as a reason to embrace the right to self-defense within their relatively small groups, which they confuse with the defense of the masses in their communities. Amid the disorientation and siege mentality produced by state repression, radicals became somewhat isolated from their communities. They began to see themselves as enlightened actors. Before long, they began to substitute the painstaking task of grassroots mobilization with heroic acts of sacrifice taken on behalf of, quote, the people. The central leadership had a closed retreat just for itself to figure out what was going wrong, why things are getting bad. And they decide that the answer is that they need to centralize more power. They decided at the retreat that the social services move was the wrong one. And instead, they should focus on leading a revolution to free Puerto Rico. And basically, are like, if you're real revolutionaries, this is what you care about, not this volunteerism, which means we're shifting over to fundraising. And now that's what we're going to do here in the United States is fundraise and relocate organizers to Puerto Rico. And the rank and file of the young lords aren't really excited about this. Um, And actually, I think some of it probably has to do with some of what you're talking about, like New York and identity and a disconnect from the island. Yeah. Very. I mean, I'm sure some of them had connection to the island, you know, but definitely strange move to go far away and then try to free people over there who could, should probably, if they're going to free themselves, they should probably free themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So their membership starts to decline. Uh-huh. It didn't help that they got really paranoid about COINTELPRO, which is not their fault. That is literally the purpose of COINTELPRO. Totally. And they started to purge people without evidence, especially people who were critical of this new change in focus. Mm. So they dropped from 1,000 members to 200 members and not very long at all. They were not well-received in Puerto Rico. They showed up in fatigues and berets, 
And this didn't go over as a powerful symbol of working-class militancy. It just confused people. The Nationalist Party that they showed up to help didn't really like them. Most of the independence movements at the time there were rich and white. Oh, wow. And they also, white within the Puerto Rican context, probably not in the United States context. Well, the mainland. And also they were like, Buds, you can't just show up out of nowhere and tell us you're going to free us. And they were outsiders. They knew how to organize in New York City really well. On the island, they met with little success. They did do stuff. They did. It was earnest. By June 1971, two of the three New York City offices shut their doors. They switched ideological focuses again. And this time they switched to a workerist attitude, meaning the lumpen proletariat, the thieves and stuff. Yeah. They're no longer the shit. So now we're all into the workers. But there's a problem here. Being a young lord was a full-time 24-7 commitment, which means workers hadn't joined. It was the unemployed or the soon-to-be unemployed. Students, youth, and criminals were primarily who the young lords recruited from. So they didn't get workers. They just lost lumpen. So they went out and tried to get jobs in industry to go organize people, which kind of went over like showing up in Puerto Rico. Yeah. They got more rigid and dogmatic, and they spiraled. They tried to solve it in 1972 by having a 40-day course of Marxist study in which they discussed and read Marx for six hours a day and tried to out-revolutionary each other. This further alienated them from everyone. No. (laughs) I know. I know. And it's like, I'm sure there's another read of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But like... Also dealing with immense pressure and like... Yeah. Like, like, it's so easy for us to be like, and COINTELPRO was happening. It's like, they didn't know. COINTELPRO wasn't a thing that people knew, you know? Right. Well, they had just learned, but... Uh Uh-huh. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the paranoia and, yeah. yeah. So they tried to solve their further alienation from everyone by centralizing the authority from a central leadership to a central leader, a woman named Gloria Fontanez. And then they kicked out all the people who had gone to Puerto Rico because the people who had gone to Puerto Rico were like, hey, this isn't working. We mm-hmm. shouldn't do this. Um, but central leadership was like, nope, you've got to stay the course. Some of the leadership flew down there and barged in and yelled at everyone for betraying the movement by, by betraying their authority and called them the enemies of the people. The Young Lords Party changed their name to Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization, um, which isn't so catchy. They demoted their central leader for being too petty bourgeoisie. And that's kind of the tailspin of the New York chapter, as far as I can tell. Chicago... Mm-hmm kept going and individuals from all of this, right? And yeah. like people still doing things as young lords did a, a lot of stuff. Um, Chicago in particular, um, their moment seemed kind of gone. And I don't know enough to do the rest of it real justice. A lot of Chicago young lords sort of move into the electoral sphere, uh-huh. are involved in getting, I think, I want to say Chicago's first black mayor elected. Oh, wow. Like 10 years later or so. It's not in the script, so I don't have the numbers in front of me. A ton of them stayed really radical and keep, kept doing good work. I don't really want to linger on their fall. I want to stay with most of what they yeah, did. Yeah. But I will mention one of the young lords, one of their lawyers who helped them out a lot. He went on to become a famous man. Oh, no. I know oh. who you're talking about. <laughs> the Republican oh. Fox News host. Oh, my God. Her name, his name is Geraldo Rivera. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> I made yeah, so shaking my head. Shit. Shaking my fucking head. I prefer to remember Juan Gonzalez instead. Yeah. Co host of Democracy Now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And fucking, and your uncle who fucking quit. He yeah, got fired. Arnie. Yeah. Who's not actually related. Um, well, we're going to see knows? about that. Okay. Okay. I'm scared of DNA websites, so I don't do that, but I'll yeah, do some. Fair. I'll do some Googling yeah. <laughs> and find him, write him a random email. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's like uh, every, there's some cliche I learned a long time ago that like every story is a tragedy if you don't know when to end it. Uh-huh. You know, because like all uh-huh. of us die, right? Everything passes. Yeah. But God damn, they got so much done. You yeah. Know? Yeah, and also there are so many of these members who even if they didn't get famous or something you know they were still like incredible community activists and yeah you know are doing or making amazing art i one woman um made a really great documentary called palante siempre palante that's really great on youtube so yeah they're still out there and they're still total badasses yeah it's so fucking Good. I listened to a bunch of different interviews where you, yeah, you can still listen to interviews where like the guy who stole the van who's like, yeah, we stole the van, and like the <laughs> woman who like staffed the table in the host in Lincoln Hospital and just was like, every day I'm gonna sit in the butcher shop and let people tell me what's wrong here, you know, wow. like still alive, like still fucking, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's the young lords. That's the first four-parter I ever wrote. It's the second one we recorded. But um, I don't know. Any, any other final? Well, no, I think we said it all. I guess, you know, for me, what I really took away from learning about the Young Lords is just is how important it was for them and it is for us to listen yeah. to the folks that live around us, to listen to people who... You know, if you're someone like me who's an artist, I think it's really important for me to listen to people who have to fucking work every day and or are <laughs> much older than me. Or, you know, I think that was something that I really inspired me about them is their ability in the beginning to listen to their community about what they wanted and needed. Yeah. You know. And just like create a fucking to-do list and then just started checking boxes off. Seriously. Yeah. And also the berets were cool. Let's just oh, yeah. say it. No. <laughs> and first organized by race. a 15-year-old who was like, I need fucking, I need to like throw a bunch of dance shows to like make money to get us all cool black and purple. Cha-cha yeah. for the win. Yeah. Well, if people want to listen to you, I will say everyone yes. should go listen to the song Palente. You should look it up on YouTube so you can watch the video. Um, P-A-L-E-N-T-E. I don't know where the apostrophe is. Oh, P-A-L-A-N-T-E. A-N-T-E. Yeah. Apologize. Yeah, there's a great uh, music video directed by my friend Chris Merck, who's an incredible director. My dad is in it, which is really cool to see him pop up in there. And a lot of, um, there's the Pedro Pietri, uh, an excerpt from his, his poem, Puerto Rican Obituary. And I encourage anybody to just like go down the rabbit hole of like how much amazing stuff was created from this movement, like the New Rican Poets Cafe and stuff like that. 
Um, what's your new album called? Well, my new album, I just finished recording it. So I'm not going to reveal the name yet. Oh, I'm sorry. I timed this pattern. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's going to come out. I hope it comes out sometime next year. I haven't gotten the rough oh, okay. mixes back yet. So I'm going kind of crazy because I want to hear what I did. Okay. So this isn't um, what you're about to tour on. No, I'm still touring on my last record. My okay. last record is called Life on Earth. It came out last February. And I'll be out there playing music like on the West Coast in May. Cool. Um, and then in July. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be playing Portland. Cool. Mm-hmm. In July, I'll be playing all around like the Midwest and stuff. Sick. Yeah. So come see us, buy some merch, help us out. We're, it's tough out there. Hanging in there. Hasn't been a good couple <laughs> of years for career musicians. Is that what you're saying? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I get like, you know, a, gl- a glimmer of a penny anytime you listen to me on Spotify. So head over to Bandcamp. <laughs> I encourage everyone to. Get get music off Bandcamp on Bandcamp Fridays. Really helps us. Yeah, I try and buy albums, and then I I do a lot of my listening on Spotify. But I like it's nice to also buy it. You know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it all helps. Yeah. Okay. Um, what else can I pitch? I'm gonna kickstart a tabletop role playing game this summer. Wow. I've been working on this tabletop role-playing game called Penumbra City for like 10 fucking years, and I'm working with a really good crew of people. Uh, If you want to play Gangs versus the God King tabletop role-playing game, you should check that out once it gets kickstarted. I think um, I don't want to... I know what dates I think we're going to kickstart it, but I don't want to say it because I don't want to be wrong. Um, And then I'm going to be another tabletop role-playing game I'm writing for. Oh, that was not announced yet. Ah, stupid things with things and controlling information. That's what I got. And also my most recent book is Escape from Insel Island. And if you want quick adventure read, it's very short book. If you have a, I get a lot of messages from people who are like, I don't read much because I don't have the attention span for it anymore, but I can read your books. Takes only a couple hours to read Escape from Insel Island. And you can be like, I read a whole last book because it's, about 100 pages long. Uh, <laughs> and you can also get my friend Jamie's book called Raw Dogged. Raw Dog. <laughs> Raw. <laughs> oh, God. I'm leaving it like, in. Am I going to leave it in? We're leaving it in. Okay. Dog. <laughs> okay. You can get Jamie's book, which is about hot dogs. I don't know what you're talking about, Margaret. There's no double euphemism there I'm fucking literally (laughs) blushing I think we gotta end the episode it's over (laughs) we're done you did it Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media for more podcasts from Cool Zone Media visit our website coolzonemedia.com or check us out on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.